Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award and release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Blaine Dowler. How are you doing today, Blaine? I'm doing okay. Excellent. A little tired. We're on the Daylight Savings Weekend. We are. We're here today to talk about the 51st Annual Academy Awards, which covered films released in 1978, and the Best Picture winner of that year, The Deer Hunter, directed by Michael Cimino. The Deer Hunter premiered on December 8th, 1978 in Los Angeles. That's what made it eligible, and featured Robert De Niro as Mike Vronsky. Christopher Walken as Nick Shevatarovich, John Savage as Stephen Pushkov, John Cazale as Stanley, and Meryl Streep as Linda. The film's screenplay was written by Derek Washburn. Our synopsis comes from the fine folks at Wikipedia. In 1968, three friends in a tight-knit Russian-American community in western Pennsylvania, the aforementioned Mike Vronsky, Stephen Pushkov, and Nick Shevatarovich work in a steel mill and hunt for deer with their co-workers Axel and Stan and bartender friend John. Mike, Stephen, and Nick are preparing to leave for military service in the Vietnam War. Stephen is engaged to Angela, who was secretly impregnated by another man. Mike and Nick are close friends who live together and both love Linda, who will be moving into their home to escape from her abusive alcoholic father. While dancing at Stephen and Angela's wedding, Linda accepts Nick's spontaneous marriage proposal. As the newlyweds drive away, Nick implores a drunk, naked Mike to ensure that he returns from Vietnam. Mike, Nick, and the other men go on a final deer hunt. Mike successfully kills a deer with a single shot in accordance with his principles. In Vietnam, Mike, now a Green Beret, is coincidentally reunited with Nick and Stephen in a village but the trio is overrun and captured by the Viet Cong. They are imprisoned in a bamboo and wire cage on a river and forced to participate in games of Russian roulette against other prisoners while jailers bet. Stephen, exhausted and filled with fear, fires his round at the ceiling. As punishment, he's left to die in a separate bamboo pit surrounded by rats and dead bodies. Mike devises a plan with Nick and convinces their captors to put three bullets in the revolver cylinder instead of just one. Mike then fires the revolver at their captors, while Nick grabs a nearby soldier's rifle, which he then uses to help kill the remaining guards. The two release Stephen, who is now suffering from PTSD, out of the pit. Making their escape, the trio float down the river on a fallen tree trunk. When they reach a suspension bridge, Nick, his leg having been shot during the firefight, is rescued by an American helicopter. But Stephen is exhausted and falls back into the river. Mike drops to help Stephen while Nick is flown away in the helicopter. 
Stephen's legs are broken in the fall, so Mike carries them until they meet a caravan of refugees fleeing to Saigon. Nick is treated at a U.S. military hospital. Once released, Nick wanders out into the city of Saigon, where he follows gunshots to a gambling den, which reminds him of the torture he endured during his captivity. French businessman Julian Grinda persuades him to come inside. Upset, Nick interrupts a game of Russian roulette, aiming the revolver at one of the players, pulling the trigger, and then pulling the trigger once more while aiming it at himself. Mike is present as a spectator and calls out to Nick, but Nick and Julian hurriedly leave without hearing him amid the commotion. In 1970, Mike returns home, but experiences difficulty reintegrating into civilian life. He decides not to appear at a welcome home party organized by Linda and their friends, opting instead to stay overnight alone in a motel. He visits Linda the next morning and learns that Nick has deserted. Mike then visits Angela, who's now the mother of a child, but has slipped into catatonia following the return of Stephen, who's been rendered an invalid. Stan, Axel, and John did not serve in the military, remaining in the United States during the war, and don't know of the horrors Mike has experienced, treating him in the same manner they did before he left. Linda and Mike find comfort in each other's company. Mike's disorientation is made evident during the subsequent days. He cannot bring himself to shoot a deer during a hunting trip, and is outraged when Stan facetiously threatens Axel with his revolver. When Mike witnesses Stan's behavior to show him the gravity of his actions, he chambers a single cartridge into the cylinder and triggers an empty chamber at Stan's head. Mike visits Stephen at a veteran's hospital. Both of Stephen's legs have been amputated, and he has lost the use of an arm. Stephen refuses to come home, saying he likes the hospital, that is, like a resort. He informs Mike that he's been regularly, regularly receiving large sums of money from Vietnam. Mike believes that Nick is the one sending the money and forces Stephen to go back home to Angela. Mike then returns to Vietnam in search of Nick. Walking around Saigon, which is now in a state of chaos shortly before its fall, Mike finds Julian and persuades him to bring him to the gambling den. Mike finds Nick, who's become a professional in the macabre game, but Nick fails to recognize him. Mike attempts to bring Nick back to reason, but Nick, who is now a heroin addict, is indifferent. During a game of Russian roulette, Mike invokes memories of their hunting trips. Nick recalls Mike's one-shot principle and smiles before pulling the trigger, killing himself. Mike and his friends attend Nick's funeral, and the atmosphere at their local bar is dim and silent. Moved by emotion, John begins to sing God Bless America in honor of Nick, while everyone joins in. And that concludes the synopsis for The Deer Hunter. What were your overall impressions, Blaine? This one, I think I even said last week, this will be the first time I watched it. This is intense. It's a very good movie, but it's not light. There's moments of happiness, but the overall feel, especially with the ending, is, is not upbeat. And I'm maybe a little more sensitive to it with a, a Vietnamese wife, but the depictions of the Vietnamese here are not balanced. The only ones, the only Vietnamese characters that we really deal with are either criminal underworld or soldiers on the other side of a war, which, you know what, they're, those characters are generally not going to be shown in a positive light in any movie. Right. Right. I don't care which war it is. I don't care what it is. If it's the other soldiers, if they're being shown in a positive light, it's an anti-war film. And this is, well, it is a form of an anti-war film because it's showing how devastating the effects of war can be on the soldiers. But yeah, it's not about let's not go to war. It's like, look at the damage this does. 
So I find that it's less anti-war and more like, let's take care of these people. So yeah, that I am happy I've seen it. It's an excellent movie. It's not one I'm going to rewatch very often just because it, it's emotionally draining to go through that ride again. I think you liked it more than I did, Blaine. I, I'd be willing to call it a good movie. I think it's mainly carried by a great cast. And I know that, you know, a director has some influence on the acting. So, you know, I don't want to say Chimino did a horrible job. I I really felt like this needed some more work before it was filmed. To, to me, the story was a little disjointed. I got the themes, and I thought the themes were well represented. But I think this may have won Best Editing, and that really surprises me, because I think this needed a better edit. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say it's perfect. It's just, it is intense. That's That's the first thing I took away. Let's talk about some of the performers we we have de niro who at this point is writing fairly high in his career he's already done mean streets uh taxi driver and godfather 2 and i would kind of say he's the driving character in, in this as mike yeah i would say he's the title character as the deer hunter so yeah he is definitely the centerpiece and he is affected by the war, not as much as the others, so that sort of grounds him as the audience perspective. But it's still not the same. I mean, the one-shot principle, I'm not sold on hunting as a sport in the modern day, but I do appreciate those that say, no, it's one shot, you do not let that animal suffer. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, when they go hunting after the war, he intentionally misses. He, He cannot harm that animal, and yet he's still willing to play Russian roulette with humans. So it, it's, I'm not going to say it's unrealistic. It's just weird. And it shows you what this can do. Yeah. And I, I think he's, I think he's haunted by his actions, both. And don't get me wrong. The, his actions came about because of being in the situations he was in. And it was the war that he put him in those situations. So I don't want to say that it's not about the war, but I think he's a man haunted by his choices. Right. So. I would, for for all that I said about the edit, I would have liked to have seen the film go on past its ending, because in a lot of ways, Mike is responsible for what happened to Nick. You know, Nick's definitely the alpha male out of the three. Nick has choices to make. You know, the, the synopsis made it feel like the two of them were huddling together in the cage, coming up with an escape plan. They didn't collaborate on that plan. <laughs> no, it. Mike is going, I have the plan. You do what I say when I say, and we'll get out of this. And Nick did not want, you know, did not want to go along with it. But But Mike pushed the situation to where he had no choice. In the moment, I can't criticize the choice that he made, but he had to make a choice between Stephen and... Nick, and he chose Stephen. Mm-hmm. You know, now again, Nick's on the is on the army helicopter. Why would you suspect that he would be worse off than Nick than Steve, who fell in the river? So, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not questioning that that choice. 
but but that's what kind of put Nick out there alone. Yeah, and I agree that based on the information that was available to him at the time, Mike made the right choice. Because like you said, what, what was happening with Nick was very much under the, the surface, whereas with Stephen, it was very open. So, and that, that will be the kind of thing that skews the response. So, yeah, like I, I might have to, like I said, I'm not looking forward to watching it a second time, but I might need to do that to finalize it because it, it did feel a bit uneven, but the scenes that worked well worked so well mm-hmm. that it did keep me going. That, and that's what I mean by I can't say that it's like a bad film. I just felt like, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that it has to be like every single Vietnam film made, you know, before or since. It doesn't have to be like Platoon. It doesn't have to be like Full Metal Jacket. But I felt the shift from the night before they shipped out to Mike in the village in the jungle to be so jarring, I had no context for where we were and what was happening. And then for it to be, oh, hey, I happened to just find two soldiers, and those two soldiers just happened to be my friends. It was almost like the wedding scene took so long, you could have cut an easy 15 to 20 minutes out of that wedding scene and gotten more to maybe set up them go you know them being in the war i i felt i want to talk about meryl streep a little bit i i feel like her and john kazal were kind of the mvps to me one i just i'm fascinated by the career of john kazal and in such a short time he was in so many important films of the seventies. And I always find him riveting to watch. And I, the, the scenes that I consistently enjoyed were the scenes that Linda was, or that Meryl Streep was in as Linda. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have no issue seeing, looking at this going, Oh, this is why this career launched. Yeah. The talent was very clearly there. And as soon as she had a script that gave her something to do, then she became the Meryl Streep. We know who now holds the record for the most nominations for a living actress for the Oscars. And and this was a great role because she wasn't simply the girl back home pining for the soldier overseas, right? Mm -hmm. Do you find comfort with the one who is there or do you hold out for the person who may never come back? And you're looking at Mike. You could say Mike wasn't quite normal before he left i mean i'm not i don't want to call him abnormal but he was he was still kind of withdrawn and standoffish before but before he shipped out right um yeah but if nick came back would nick be the same nick that left i don't think he could be no so uh, so watching her struggle with that choice and the way she did it so subtly was great mm-hmm. Uh, the the only performance that was a little off to me was John Savage when Stephen was in the hospital. I don't know if they were trying to imply that he was like high on pain medication or what, but that that was kind of the only off kilter performance to me. Yeah, I 
I, I got that as more that, you know, Stephen just, the way he was, he didn't want to be seen by his friends and family. So he, I thought he was making excuses for why he didn't want to leave. That's fair. Yeah. So you get a little bit of that disconnect where basically the, so the actor is playing a person who is acting, but is not an actor. Got it. Yeah. And maybe that's him trying to oversell to Mike how happy he is at the VA. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I didn't get the impression that anyone there was really happy. I, I, I just got the impression he didn't, you know, when he's lost three out of four limbs, I, I get why he doesn't want to go back. It would, or at least why it'd be difficult to go back. Well, it, especially to that society and that culture, you know, one of the things that I was really taken with was just the attitudes of what was and wasn't acceptable in terms of male and female relationships, in terms of violence. And one thing that struck me as I was reading the synopsis is the film starts in 1968. I'm not sure what year it is when it ends, but it starts in 68. I don't know how much was known about what was really going on in Vietnam in the States at that time. I, I kind of, <clears throat> you know how a lot of people watch MASH and they forget that it's supposed to be the Korean War because it's a show in the 70s, so they translate it to like the Vietnam War because that was the more recent thing. I was kind of viewing it with the attitudes that I expected people to have in 1978 and not necessarily 1968. So I found some of the rah-rah, yep, we're going to go over there and we're going to win, we're going to dominate on patriotism, a little unsettling at first because in my in my mind I was like they wouldn't be that, you know, more would be known about how tough it was and how rough things were going by 78. But I had that disconnect of, no, the film's supposed to be set a decade earlier, if that makes sense. Yeah, the IMDb trivia says that it ends in 75, but a IMDb trivia for something like that, it's unsighted. It just says, these are the years that the movie takes place, so I don't know how accurate that is. Right? There's no definitive on-screen indicator. We know that that time has passed, so... Well, and maybe they're using the fall of Saigon, Saigon as kind of a benchmark because when Mike goes back to try and pull Nick out, you know, they make a big deal about that day's go you know, that city's going to collapse any day now. But there's nothing outside of that that kind of dates the passage of time. Yeah. I mean, the only other thing I could think of is if you know how long the standard tour of duty was. Right. Because that's how Mike got home is this tour ended. So you might be able to piece it together. But yeah, I think there... So if you are familiar with the events of the Vietnam War, maybe you could put it together and maybe 1975 is accurate. I'm just not entirely sure. But but where I was talking about cult, uh, about the culture is, you know, the guys definitely all kind of have that... It would be considered toxic now. I guess it was kind of male standard, early 70s, late 60s kind of bro behavior. We... You know, we rough up the women and throw them around. We're lewd, we're not loud, we're obnoxious. We spend all our time, you know, drinking at the bar when we're not working, that kind of thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's elements of that, but that's something. Again, I part of that I took in as the people who are looking forward to serving in the war, because again, I have a hard time. I mean, this this was the first best picture winner to be released during my lifetime, but I wasn't born yet when they started filming, so it's really hard for me to imagine, as you're saying, how Viet the Vietnam War would have been viewed in the the late 1960s. Because by the time I knew that the war had happened and what it was, I was aware of how much propaganda had gone into getting Americans to support the war at all in the first place. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were anti-war protesters from the start, but I got the impression that when that movement started, it wasn't that, oh, no, they're lying to us about Vietnam. It was just, well, any war is bad. And that the specifics didn't start to come out until the war was well in progress. Ken Burns did a documentary. I saw the first two parts. I should go back and finish it because he he will do that well. Yeah, I just remember growing up, being born in 75. That was the most recent military conflict, and it had left such, I'm going to call it a scar, for lack of a better word, on the American psyche that it kind of resonated, and you couldn't grow up in the mid to late 70s going into the 80s without that weird kind of dichotomy of the war we shouldn't have been involved in and the people who were in denial who well we never actually declared war it was a military conflict like that changed things right well yeah like putin says there's no war in ukraine right now exactly and that how the people who took the brunt of it we're not necessarily the people who made the bad decisions that got us involved, but it was it was the Mikes, the Steves, and the Knicks, right? Mm-hmm. Who thought they were going over there to serve their country and do a good and noble thing and got kicked in the ass by the horrors of war. And then how they became the target of a lot of the anti-war demonstrators and crowds kind of anger so you know that's the atmosphere that this film is getting released in yeah well one thing i could see from it the the anti-war protesters could use this very easily just because of the damage i mean the synopsis said ptsd i don't know if that term was even really in use at that time it wouldn't have been no but i mean no. I, I mean but it's an accurate description right he can't take it anymore mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it's definitely the right term. Going, I mean, it's the right term for World War I, whether we're calling it shell shock. War is rough even on the survivors. They come back very different. If you know about the, the Mormon faith, you know how adamantly opposed to divorce they are. Mm-hmm. And we've got a family friend. So her, you know, they, they're Mormon. Her husband served in the war. And when he came back so different, she went to the people, you know, in the Mormon temple and said, what do I do? This is what's happening. And they told her, get a divorce. Wow. Which is huge coming from the Mormon temple. Yeah. Right. And this was someone who was a fundamentally good person before he went. And that's part of the problem. The fundamentally good people can have a really difficult time doing what needs to be done when they're serving in a military capacity. And it it's scarring because that's what war is. You have to do the worst things to other human beings. Now that said, 
you don't have to make prisoners of war play Russian roulette, right? That's extremely excessive cruelty, which is probably why that scene is so intense, especially since the actors did not know all the slapping was going to be real. The director told people, no, slap them for real to keep them on edge. And apparently Robert De Niro was intense enough in real life. He had a really hard time convincing Christopher Walken to actually slap him. That was the thing that had Christopher Walken the most scared in this was going to be De Niro's reaction to actually being slapped. What did you think of the Russian roulette? Because I, I don't disagree with you that the Vietnamese people were not portrayed in anything close to fear, fair and balanced. And on the one hand, there I know that there are going to be people who are going to say they were the enemy in the war, they were the villains, and you and I have both watched the original All Quiet on the Western Front that presented a very fair and balanced view of the average German soldier during World War One. I, I felt, right? Right. So it can be done. A lot of the controversy seemed to come from the the Russian roulette, and that's the only holdover from the original script. It's like that was the hook. Yeah, I mean, that original script, our three lead characters were one character in that original script. It was a pretty traumatic change from Merle to these guys. But the, the Russian roulette, I mean, that one is just torturous. So that's not about someone Vietnam being Vietnamese. Right. That is about the kind of power-hungry scumbag you can get in every culture on the planet. So, yeah, I mean, they were, quote-unquote, the enemy, but my understanding of the conflict from the Vietnamese perspective is the country was in very rough shape. It had only pretty recently gained independence and needed support. And two very different governments were offering that support, and the country was divided over which side to choose and who would be the better choice. The general consensus is that they would rather be a democracy, but they didn't think America would be that interested in supporting them, and Russia was, and China, they were both right there, so the communist neighbors were a little more appealing. That said, there are a lot of Vietnamese who are here in Canada to escape the communist government, and there's issues with the communist government today that a lot of the people have, so it's not... Some of those who were supportive of the communist ideologies were not supportive of the individuals in the communist government and the way it's structured and operating. So there's uh, a lot of accusations of corruptions, as there really is in every government. It's just what kind of corruption do you get? It's, I would say that there's a lot of corruption in our capitalist governments because private interests can essentially buy votes from those that are representing supposedly the people who end up representing the, the corporation. So I think it's a question of what kind of corruption are you dealing with and what's the the magnitude of that corruption. But that's it, right? You have a populace in a desperate situation that have two choices in front of them. You're going to have divided votes. You could talk about that. You could talk about the altruism, but you go back to the history of the U.S. Before Pearl Harbor got bombed, there was significant debate among the populace over which side of the war they should be joining. Mm-hmm. Which Seems shocking to some people now, but yeah, there are people out there in the in the 30s going, you know, let's let's back Hitler. There was some of that in Canada too, not as much, and it was it was enough of a backlash that in our election, I 
forget, I think it was the 1939 federal election, we actually had a National Communist Party that was the official opposition, meaning they had the second largest representation in our federal government because people were so opposed to the fascism that they swung the other way. Well, one of the better series that Karina Longworth has done on You Must Remember This is on Huac and the Blacklist. And some of my favorite episodes are where she talks about a lot of people got caught in a sudden twist. You know, at a point in World War II, Russia was an ally and the demand was make films glorifying our Russian allies. And the people who did that were suddenly turned on as soon as the war was over and there was disagreement on how the spoils were divided. Mm -hmm. So did you have any other comments before we move into the award ceremony as a whole? Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about two other actors. I always have a hard time with his last name, but George Zunza plays John, the bartender. He's kind of one of those guy character actors. I thought he did a really good job here. But he was, he, he was also one of the first, he was uh, one of the detectives on the first cycle of detectives, so to speak, on Law and Order. And because Michael Bailey says it all comes back to Superman, he was also the voice of Perry White on Superman the Animated Series. And then the person who played Axel, Chuck Aspergen, as far as I know, was not a professional actor. Apparently, he was a foreman on a construction site before he walked into the audition and was the second person cast because they were so happy with him. So for for not having any experience, not having any training, and, you know, <laughs> you're acting with Walken and De Niro and uh, Cazal and Savage, I, I thought he did a great job. <laughs> yeah, you've got to hold your own against that crew. And I think that's a huge part of it. So... You're right that there's some unevenness in the story, and I think that was overcome to a large degree by how powerful these performances were. Mm -hmm. It's just, this is a cast who could take pretty much anything and keep running. All right, let's move on to the award ceremony. Yes, the 51st annual ceremony was on April 9th of 1979 in the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, hosted by Johnny Carson. So, Best Picture clearly went to The Deer Hunter, beating out Coming Home, Heaven Can Wait, Midnight Express, and An Unmarried Woman. Best Director went to Michael Cimino, beating out Hal Ashby for Coming Home, Warren Beatty and Buck Henry for Heaven Can Wait, Woody Allen for Interiors, and Alan Parker for Midnight Express. Best Actor went to John Voight for Coming Home, beating out Warren Beatty in Heaven Can Wait, Gary Busey in The Buddy Holly Story, Robert De Niro for The Deer Hunter, and Laurence Olivier for The Boys from Brazil. Best Actress went to Jane Fonda for Coming Home, beating out Ingrid Bergman for Autumn Sonata, Alan Burstein for Same Time Next Year, Jill Claiborne for An Unmarried Woman, and Geraldine Page for Interiors. Best Supporting Actor went to Christopher Walken for The Deer Hunter, beating out Bruce Dern for Coming Home, Richard Farnsworth for Comes a Horseman, John Hurt for Midnight Express, and Jack Warden for Heaven Can Wait. Best Supporting Actress went to Maggie Smith for California Suite, Beating out Diane Cannon for Heaven Can Wait, Penelope Milford for Coming Home, Maureen Stapleton for Interiors, and Meryl Streep for The Deer Hunter. The best screenplay went to Coming Home, 
at least written directed for, directly for the screen. That beat out Autumn Sonata, The Deer Hunter, Interiors, and An Unmarried Woman. Best screenplay based on material from another medium went to Midnight Express, beating out Blood Brothers, California Suite, Heaven Can Wait, and Same Time Next Year. Best foreign language film went to Get Out Your Handkerchief, out of France, beating out The Glass Cell from West Germany, Hungarians from Hungary, Viva Italia, out of Italy, and White Bim Black Ear, out of the Soviet Union. Best documentary went to Scared Straight, beating out The Lover's Wind, Mysterious Castles of Clay, Rayoni, and With Babies and Banners, the story of the Women's Emergency Brigade. Best Documentary Short Subject went to The Flight of the Gossamer Condor, beating out The Divided Trail, a Native American Odyssey, An Encounter with Faces, Goodnight Miss Anne, and Squires of St. Quentin. Best Live Action Short Film went to Teenage Father by Taylor Hackford, beating out A Different Approach, Mandy's Grandmother, and Strange Fruit. Best Animated Short Film went to Special Delivery, beating out Oh My Darling and Rip Van Winkle. Best Original Score went to Midnight Express, beating out The Boys from Brazil, Days of Heaven, Heaven Can Wait, and Superman by John Williams. I've got to hear the score for Midnight Express if it beat out John Williams' Superman score. Yeah, I I have not seen Midnight Express yet, and that just bumped it a good 10 spots on my viewing list. Best Adaptation Score went to The Buddy Holly Story by Joe Renzetti. That beat out Pretty Baby and The Wiz. Best Original Song went to Last Dance from Thank God It's Friday, beating out Hopelessly Devoted to You from Greece, The Last Time I Felt Like This from Same Time Next Year, Ready to Take a Chance Again from Foul Play, and When You're Loved from The Magic of Lassie. Best Sound went to The Deer Hunter, beating out The Buddy Holly Story, Days of Heaven, Hooper, and Superman. Best Costume Design went to Death on the Nile, beating out Caravans, Days of Heaven, The Swarm, and The Wiz. Best Art Direction went to Heaven Can Wait, beating out The Brinks Job, California Suite, Interiors, and The Wiz. Best Cinematography went to Days of Heaven, beating out The Deer Hunter, Heaven Can Wait, Same Time Next Year, and The Wiz. And Best Film Editing went to The Deer Hunter, beating out The Boys from Brazil, Coming Home, Midnight Express, and Superman. Now the Honorary Awards went to Laurence Olivier for a remarkable career and body of work entertaining audiences through the medium of film. Another one went to Walter Lance for creating memorable characters in animation, including Woody Woodpecker. King Vidor got one for his distinctive achievements and innovations to direction in cinema. And the Museum of Modern Art Department of Film got one in recognition of educating and inspiring the public regarding the artistic value of cinema. The Gene Hersholt Humanitarian Award went to Leo Jaff, or Jaffe, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. The Special Achievement Award went to Les Bowby, Colin Chilvers, Dennis Koop, Roy Field, Derek Mennings, and Zoran Parisic for the visual effects of Superman. And that was awarded by Christopher Reeve and Gregory Peck. So the films with multiple nominations. Deer Hunter and Heaven Can Wait were tied with nine. Coming Home had eight. Midnight Express had six. Interiors had five. Days of Heaven, Same Time Next Year, The Wiz, and Superman had four each. Boys from Brazil, Buddy Holly Story, California Suite, and An Unmarried Woman had three each. And Autumn Sonata had two. The ones that actually won multiple awards, The Deer Hunter took home five. Coming Home won three. And Midnight Express won two. So, so what are your overall impressions and comments? I'm not well-versed enough in the nominees to really opine on whether or not it was the best film out of that group. The only other one that I've also seen is Heaven Can Wait, 
but not in recent enough to where I, you know, really remember anything distinctive about it. I've bumped Coming Home up on my watch list as well, just because the battle for the awards really seemed to be between the both of these two films this year, and I think they're two very different films kind of tackling the same subject matter, at least from what I've heard about Coming Home. You know, we, we kind of already commented about any score that can beat Superman's score bears being listened to. And I kind of mentioned it earlier. You know, someone may tell me that technically it's not the editing fault, but with, you know, some scenes running too too long, some being a little too short. You know, I, I question the best film editing award, but I'm not an expert enough to where I could really definitively op- opine there. Yeah, and it's not the kind of thing that the I would expect the Academy to recognize beyond the Special Achievement Award that Superman got for the visual effects, but the editing on that first Superman film is pretty tight. Mm-hmm. Before we started recording, I was just looking at you know the most popular films from IMDb for the year, and I, I don't want to say 1978 was a bad year for film, but just as I scrolled through the list, you had what I'm going to call some pop culture, a few pop culture classics like Superman and Grease, and then, you know, some genre classics, mostly from horror, like, you know, Dawn of the Dead. But it it didn't seem to be one of those years to where you could easily rattle off 20 films from that year that everybody's seen. Right. You know what I mean? So. Mm hmm. I don't want to say that it was a poor film for cinema, but it's it's definitely a blind spot in the films that I've watched outside of, you know, some of those that I named. Halloween came out in 1978. Again, genre classic, but I was struggling to come up with more than five films that came out in 1978 that I felt like most people would have seen or heard of, if, if that makes sense. Oh, it does. This seems to be a year for... Uh, funding populist films rather than what it, we are now thinking of as the best picture contenders, which is funny because you go back to things like the 1940s, you know, Casablanca was both, but the the values of that best picture award have shifted in the decades in between. So shall we cover the Golden Globes? Yep. All right. So we're looking at the 36th annual Golden Globes that were awarded on January 27th of 1979. Best drama went to Midnight Express beating out Coming Home, Days of Heaven, The Deer Hunter, and An Unmarried Woman. For comedy or musical, Heaven Can Wait beat out California Sweet Foul Play, Grease, and Movie Movie. So for Best Performance in a Motion Picture Drama, Best Actor went to John Voight for Coming Home, beating out Brad Davis for Midnight Express, Robert De Niro from The Deer Hunter, Anthony Hopkins to Magic, and Gregory Peck for The Boys from Brazil. Best Actress went to Jane Fonda for Coming Home, beating out Ingrid Bergman for Autumn Sonata, Jill Claiborne for An Unmarried Woman, Glenda Jackson for Stevie, and Geraldine Page for Interiors. Best Performance in a Comedy or Musical, actor went to Warren Beatty for Heaven Can Wait, beating out Alan Alda for Same Time Next Year, Gary Busey for The Buddy Holly Story, Chevy Chase for Foul Play, George C. Scott for Movie Movie, and John Travolta for Grease. Best Actress was a tie between Alan Burstyn and Alan Burstein in Same Time Next Year and Maggie Smith in California Suite. Beating out Jacqueline Bassett for Who is Killing the Great Chefs of Europe, Goldie Hawn for Foul Play, 
and Olivia Newton-John for Grease. Best Supporting in Drama, Comedy, or Musical. Actor went to John Hurt for Midnight Express. Beating out Bruce Stern for Coming Home, Dudley Moore for Foul Play, Robert Morley for Who Is Killing the Great Chefs of Europe, and Christopher Walken for The Deer Hunter. Supporting Actress went to Diane Cannon for Heaven Can Wait. Beating out Carol Burnett for A Wedding, Maureen Stapleton for Interiors, Meryl Streep for The Deer Hunter, and Mona Washburn for Stevie. Best Director went to Michael Cimino for The Deer Hunter. Woody Allen was nominated for Interiors. Hal Ashby for Coming Home, Terrence Malick for Days of Heaven, Paul Mazursky for An Unmarried Woman, and Alan Parker for Minette Express. Best Screenplay went to Minette Express by Oliver Stone, bringing out Coming Home, The Deer Hunter, Foul Play, Interiors, and An Unmarried Woman. Best Original Score, Golden Globes Agreed, Minette Express, Beat Out Children of Sanchez, The Lord of the Rings, Superman, and An Unmarried Woman. And yes, that is the animated Lord of the Rings by Ralph Bakshke that was nominated for that Best Original Score. Best Original Song went to Last Dance from Thank God It's Friday, beating out the title track from Grease, Last Time I Felt Like This from Same Time Next Year, Ready to Take a Chance Again from Foul Play, and You're the One That I Want, also from Grease. I think it's interesting that, you know, Grease was in both award ceremony nominations, but I'm just double-checking. It was for... Different songs and did not one. Yeah, the Academy favored the ballad, as I have seen. That seems to be their trend. So a little bit of commentary now since we've stopped. I would have given Best Original Song to something from Greece. Maybe you're the one that I want. Possibly Grease Lightning. See, I, I'm i a big fan of Summer Lovin'. <laughs> yeah. You got to give it to Greece for the music. It has not aged well. A little bit of a change in the ending, and you could fix a lot of it. People... Talk about how it's always Olivia Newton-John's character changing for John Travolta's. She is more open about it, but John Travolta was his character. Danny Zuko was also changing for her, right? He got the letter jacket. He was going straight. Mm -hmm. It's just at the end when they see they've changed for each other and she stays changed and he throws the changes away that I go, "Eh, they could meet in the middle. They could stay changed. They could just accept each other for who they are. All better options. But the music is good. Anyway, the new Star of the Year Actor Award went to Brad Davis for Midnight Express, beating out Chevy Chase for Foul Play, Harry Hamlin for Movie Movie, Doug McKean for Uncle Joe Shannon, Eric Roberts for King of the Gypsies, and Andrew Stevens for The Boys in Company C. Okay, so two things. One, Foul Play is a crazy gonzo movie that is a lot of fun and worth watching. It's one of his and Goldie Hawn's earlier films that I don't think gets enough respect, like, seems like old time. Why is Christopher Reeve's name not in this list? Yeah, I know that he, Reeve had had uh, soap opera work, but, yeah, I I don't know. Especially given we've got one, two, we've got six names on the list, and Chevy Chase and Eric Roberts are the two I've heard of. Well, Harry Hamlin, Perseus from Clash of the Titans. Okay. Yeah, as, as, as soon as I put my name over it. I see that in LA law. When I see the face, it's, Oh, that guy. Yeah. So I, I know that he's been in a lot. I just haven't seen a huge amount, but you know, cause especially think like, I think when we first started talking about this, it was like with Shirley MacLaine, she'd already been in three films and they voted her best newcomer of the year. So yeah, Christopher Reeve mm-hmm. should have totally been in this list. Yeah. Well, if we look at the, the actress list for new star of the year, we get Irene Michael for midnight express. And she beat out Anne Ditchburn, 
Annie Potts, Anita Skinner, and Mary Steenbergen. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm very familiar with two of those names of the others. So yeah, Annie Potts and Mary Steenbergen, they've actually got photos in their little pop-up. Anita Skinner doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. And Anne Ditchburn and Irene Michael don't have photos. Uh, best foreign film. Golden Globes gave it to Autumn Sonata, beating out Death on the Nile, Dona Flor and Her Two Husbands, A Dream of Passion, Get Out Your Handkerchiefs, and Lemon Popsicle. So that seems to be a pretty different lineup. Uh, the TV Awards, Best Drama, 60 Minutes, beat out Battlestar Galactica, Family, Holocaust, and Lou Grant. It looks like Meryl Streep and James Woods were in Holocaust. Mm-hmm. A four-part TV miniseries. Uh, best series comedy or musical went to Taxi, beating out Alice, All in the Family, The Love Boat, and Three's Company. Best actor in a drama series went to Michael Moriarty for Holly Cost, beating out Ed Asner for Lou Grant, James Garner for The Rockford Files, Richard Hatch for Battlestar Galactica, John Hausman for The Paper Chase, and Michael Landon for Little House on the Prairie. Best actress in a drama series went to Rosemary Harris for Holocaust, beating out Kate Jackson for Charlie's Angels, Christy McNichol for Family. Lee Remick for Wheels, and Seda Thompson for Family. Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical Series went to Robin Williams for Mork and Mindy, beating out Alan Alda for MASH, Gavin McLeod for The Love Boat, Judd Hirsch for Taxi, and John Ritter for Three's Company. Best Actress for Comedy or Musical went to Linda Lavin for Alice, beating out Carol Burnett for The Carol Burnett Show, Penny Marshall for Laverne and Shirley, Suzanne Summers for Three's Company, and Gene Stapleton for All in the Family. Best Supporting Actor went to Norman Fell for Three's Company, uh, beating out Jeff Conaway for Taxi, Danny DeVito for Taxi, Pat Harrington Jr. for One Day at a Time, and Andy Kaufman for Taxi. So Taxi seems to have split the vote on that one. Mm-hmm. Best Supporting Actress went to Polly Holiday for Alice, beating out Mary Lou Henner for Taxi, Julie Kavner for Rhoda, Linda Kelsey for Lou Grant, Audra Lindley for Three's Company, and Nancy Walker for Rhoda. Going back up to Best Foreign Film for just a second, Lemon Popsicle was produced by Golan Globus, and its success is kind of what led to the Golan Globus production company and later, you know, Canon Films. So, okay. If it wasn't for Lemon Popsicle, you might not have had the cinema classics such as Missing in Action 2 or Masters of the Universe or Superman 4. Mm-hmm. Which we talked about last month. <laughs> it's been a lot of Superman talk lately. If Michael Bailey is listening, he's smiling. Okay. So any other general thoughts? No. Oh, yeah, I'm still... I'm wondering how Chevy Chase didn't win Best New Star. I get that... I'm wondering if it was because... I think at this point he'd already done a few seasons of Saturday Night Live. And this was just transition to movies. Because you're right. Christopher Reeve should have been on that list. But as as perfect as he was for Superman... And I, I haven't seen the the time travel romance that he's in. I've heard great things about. But the other things I've seen, none have really jumped out at me. Switching channels. He is still my choice for the best Superman we've ever had. But it's like David Duchovny is a pitch-perfect Fox Mulder, but hasn't blown me away in any other role. I, I liked him in um, Remains of the Day. And then, and I I I love switching channels. There's... There's something about the front page to where, slash His Girl Friday to where, you know, I've seen every single version of it, I think. And I'm not going to remember the name of it. I think maybe Kim Cattrall was in it. 
as well. There was a really great made-for-cable thriller that he was in that quickly got kind of shelved because in it, he basically is suspected of committing a murder by a particular police detective, but his alibi is, you know, how did he do it? Because he's someone who was paralyzed in an accident. And then, you know, it was maybe two years after that that he had his horseback riding accident. So it kind of, it had a quick uptick in popularity from kind of a macabre irony perspective, and then kind of quickly disappeared. But he was really good in it as well. Okay. Um, And for the record, Somewhere in Time was his time travel thing. Directed by Gino Schwartz, which surprises me. He's better known for things like Jaws 2 and Supergirl. Quick little aside, unfortunately I cannot remember his last name, but his first name was Andy. When I worked at Suncoast, there was a man who worked there named Andy, whose full-time job was managing a local theater, but then he also worked at Suncoast so he could get the movie discount. And he he was a huge fan of Somewhere in Time. There was like an annual convention for the film that he would go to, and he had met both Christopher Reeve and uh, Jane Seymour at the conventions. Okay. Yes. As far as I could tell, you could purchase it on Apple TV, but you can't stream it. But yeah, I keep hearing wonderful things that, you know, the audience rating is 80%. It's got a, a score of 7.2 on IMDb. It's its fans love it. It's written by Richard Matheson, which is a huge bonus in my, in my <laughs> view. Oh, and when we're, when we're talking about Christopher Reeve's body of work, we, we can't leave out Death Trap with him and Michael Caine. That's really good, too. Okay. Yeah, I definitely have to dig into a lot more of his non-Superman work. Because, yeah, there's... And Jane Seymour was in somewhere in time. Anyway. Yeah, so those are what stuck out at me. But, you know, Chevy Chase, I find his movies extremely hit and miss. He he started off strong, but it seems like the more creative control he got, the less I enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. Right down to... Joining an ensemble cast and community and then getting mad that he didn't become the lead and staging a voicemail because they're, yeah, he, I guess the issues with community is he wanted to be the lead. He wasn't getting it. So he was threatening to leave the show. So he phoned the series creator at a time he knew the creator could not answer his phone and recorded the voicemail claiming, no, it's time for my character to grow up and stop being racist and all the stuff that he could get fan support for. And then published that voicemail that he left to skew the the fan support mm-hmm. so he's uh he filmed in our city once and people who shook his hand said it was super creepy you could tell he's never held a shovel in his life he was born cornelius chase crane and the crane part is like or cornelius crane chase and the the crane is from the crane toilets so he's he's working because he enjoys it he's never had to work a day in his life with the money that he was born with which you know that in itself is not a bad thing he just hasn't really impressed people as a human being. But anyway, he has no part in the deer hunter. So um, shall we move on to the IMDb and letterboxed? Yes, let's. All right. So the deer hunter actually made it to spot number 191 on the IMDb's top 250 of all time at the time of this recording. And it's the only one in the top 250 from the year. So it's not surprising to find it's in the number one spot of the nominees. So the nominees, Deer Hunter is number six. Midnight Express is number 22 for the year. And again, we're sorting feature films with at least a thousand votes. 
Coming Home is 43, Unmarried Woman is 62, and Heaven Can Wait comes in at number 77 for the year. So going through these, Deer Hunter is the top-rated U.S. film at number six. Number seven is Autumn Sonata. Number eight is where Dawn of the Dead comes in that we mentioned. Mm -hmm. Number 12 is the original Halloween. We've got Watership Down at 15. So these are all above the second highest rated, which is Midnight Express. Then we've got, going down the list, the next, I would say, well-known releases. National Lampoon's Animal House is number 29. Superman is number 30. Invasion of the Body Snatchers is number 31. And Jackie Chan's Drunken Master is number 32. So as far as the IMDb is concerned, Deer Hunter was the right choice. Although the nominee list could have some stiffer competition. Letterboxd puts these in a very different order. So Deer Hunter comes in at number 10 for the year, which makes it the second highest rated film coming in. Mm -hmm. For the releases this year in the English language, the highest rated English language film is Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. <laughs> and the number one film for the year overall is Autumn Sonata. Now, from there, the second highest is An Unmarried Woman at number 45, which was the fourth on the IMDb list. They agree that Coming Home was number three. That comes in at number 117 on Letterboxd. Midnight Express, which was number two on the IMDb is number four on Letterboxd, coming in at 155. Mm -hmm. Heaven Can Wait ended up below everything that has too few votes to be listed. They just put those in the middle of the list, and there's a lot of them this time around. So I only scrolled to the first 800, but there's about three or 400 movies that don't have ratings above it. I wish I could put in that same filter on Letterboxd I could put on the IMDb. So I did find that Heaven Can Wait has an average score on Letterboxd, of 3.3 out of 5. So they agree it's a good movie, but not... I would say that's not really best picture territory, but perfectly enjoyable territory. Going through these, again, between Deer Hunter and the second highest rated, we've got Dawn of the Dead, Halloween, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So I'm not seeing Superman in the top 72. I'm seeing Robin Williams off the wall live. I'm trying to see if they're... Maybe they're just using... A uh, movie poster I don't recognize. I'll have to... I'll look into that. See if I can find Superman. Okay, yeah, it's got an average score of 3.6 out of 10 here. So, yeah, so it's just showing up on page 3. Here it is. It's fairly competitive. So... Okay, it's actually being put at number 255. And it's alternating with some of the things that don't have many votes. Okay. So, yeah, there seems to be... Sort of a lot of middle of the road this year is really what I'm seeing. Yeah, so Superman has an average rating of 3.63. Interiors is 3.66, which is another one we're talking about. So yeah, Midnight Express is also here at 3.65. So again, there, there seems to be a lot of disagreement between the way to sequence 2 through 5 with the other nominees. But the two main sources are agreeing that Deer Hunter is the top. And I'm not going to disagree with them. Like you said, looking at everything that came out this year, I'm not seeing another serious contender. Mm -mm. I mean, even the films I enjoy, I I still think, even through most of the current renaissance, that 1978 Superman might be the best superhero film we've had. So you can complain about how cartoony Lex Luthor is, but pre-crisis, that was the comic book Lex Luthor too. So whether it's the version of Lex Luthor you like or not, 
it was faithful to the era of the comics that it was drawn from. At this point, Clark Kent in the comics was working for a TV station. He wasn't working for Perry White at the Daily Planet anymore. Yeah, the the only flaw I have with Superman, the motion picture, is the whole can you read my mind bit. And it's not so much the narration, but it kind of brings the film to a stop and it goes a little too long. Yeah, that was actually written as a song rather than a poem, but Margot Kidder couldn't sing, so they made it a poem instead. But yeah, that that one is an issue, and then like my next biggest issue is at the end where he screams into the sky, you can see Christopher Reeve's feelings, which Superman wouldn't and couldn't have. Right. But that's a fairly minor quibble, that they just didn't put white over his feelings when you get the one time you get a good look at the inside of his mouth. I'm sure... John Byrne could come up with a way that he used the glass from his rocket ship to angle the heat vision to drill the holes for the filling. Or, for all we know, that's the natural coloration of Kryptonian molars. Because it's all of them. So you could write it off as just as a trait of the species. Yeah. So any other comments on this year? Or should we tell people what to look forward to next year? Well, who would you recommend Deer Hunter to? It's tough. It's not just who, but you have to be in the mindset for this because it is very intense. It is a very good examination of PTSD, and it's really about the performances. So that's where I would go, Mm -hmm. is fans of these performers. If you want to see De Niro, if you want to see Christopher Walken, Meryl Streep, you want to see them early in their career, this is a go-to. Because without those performances, this movie doesn't work. I I agree, especially Walken and De Niro. Actors of a certain caliber, once they get to a point in their careers, they don't become caricatures of themselves, but comedians, impressionists, shorthands that they use to kind of convey those characters, those kind of caricatures get kind of embedded in your mind and kind of color how you might see some of their later work. If they have those ticks in their performances today, none of those are here. I've seen some people um, recommend it to people who enjoy war films. I would go against that recommendation. So if, for example, you're thinking this would be of a good piece with Apocalypse Now or Full Metal Jacket or Platoon, I would think again, the theme of the effects of war is the focus of the film. There's really not a lot of portrayal of the war itself beyond their prison war internment. So that's not a recommendation not to watch the movie, but if you're thinking that would be your way in, I would caution someone because they may be disappointed with the actual battle or war content in it. Yeah, I think you're looking at maybe 45 minutes in a 183-minute runtime that takes place during their service. And as you said, about half of that is while they're POWs. And we don't even see how they get there. That's part of why it's such an intense scene is you go from, okay, here we're, we're wrapping up our deer hunt. Now let's go serve, jump cut to POWs. Mm-hmm. So, so shall we tell people what's up next month? Yes. Blaine, next month you are going to preside over that infamous court case, Kramer versus Kramer. 
starring Dustin Hoffman and, again, Meryl Streep. Yes, which is the first Best Picture winner that I know I have seen in theaters. I don't remember seeing it. I'm just told that I added some commentary while we were in the theater. (laughs) That was deliberately loud enough for everyone else to hear. So I'll specify what that is when we get to it next month. But yeah, Kramer vs. Kramer beat out all that jazz, Apocalypse Now, Breaking Away, and Norma Ray. So that's what we have to look forward to next month. All right. As we get into, well, the this is the the first award ceremony in the 1980s, but it's the last winner for the 1970s. All right. So thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.